why are we looking at Jonah? It's the end of our series, four weeks on this short book, four chapters. Why are we looking at Jonah? Because as we've seen each week, like Jonah, the Lord is calling us into mission. He's calling us to serve. Jonah chapter one began with those words. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, arise, go to Nineveh. Each of us has our own Ninevehs we're called to, to reach out with God's message. And so we look at the book of Jonah, but like Jonah, the reason we find comfort in this book is that our story of being on mission can also feel like a bit of a mess, a bit of a comedic mess. The book of Jonah, if you haven't realized so far, it really is a comedy, a comedy of errors, a comedy of, of gigantic proportion. Jonah is a comic figure, but here's the punchline. You and I at times are just like Jonah. We are a comedic mess, story of absolute brokenness. We were driving just this week uh, back from Florida and we were driving through Mississippi and uh, came to a McDonald's uh, close to the evening. Um, we wanted coffee and tea, hot tea, to be clear. Well, we pulled up to the drive through and I said, do you have hot tea? And after a long pause, no. Do you have hot water you could put in a mug for us? After another long pause, yes. We get all the way to the drive through window and we realize that we have broken McDonald's. The drive through window won't open. For about 10 minutes, no joke, we're sitting there with the window closed as the entire staff of that McDonald's was huddled together in the drive-thru room trying to figure out what to do with this request for hot water in a cup because Monica had brought her own tea bags. Finally, the window opens and one brave soul nervously comes forward and says, we cannot give you hot water. I said, yes, you can. <laughs> we cannot give you hot water. This is what they've come up with. We cannot give you hot water because McDonald's is concerned that we will be sued by you if we do. And I wanted to say, is one of you a representative of McDonald's Corporation? Is one of you a lawyer in that room? But no, we had clearly broken McDonald's. And it was a joke, we laughed about it. Every restaurant, every gas station we saw after that, Monica would say, I bet I could get hot water there. I bet I could get hot water there. <laughs> but this, this comedic joke of just a broken experience is exactly the picture that we often find ourselves when we look at this question of being on mission. We look at ourselves, we see our imperfections, we see our inabilities, we see our fears, and we say, I, I can't do this, I'm a, I'm a mess. I'm a mess if I'm to go on mission. Well, the great thing about Jonah, this whole book has given us a picture of hope, hope for broken comedic messes on mission like you and me. In this final chapter of Jonah chapter four, this final chapter, we see that Jonah is blind, 
He's blind to his need. But Jonas also beckoned back to mission. Even though he's blind, he's beckoned back into the mission field. And finally, we find Jonah beloved. Despite the fact that he's totally blind, beckoned back into the mission field, Jonah, we find, is beloved. And here's where we find the hope. So first, Jonah is blind. Verses 2 and 3 of chapter 4, Jonah says this crazy thing. Listen to these two verses side by side. Jonah prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is this not what I said to you when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God, merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore, now, O Lord... Please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. Do you hear what Jonah said there? The Lord has relented from destroying Nineveh. Jonah has, is in a moment, going to go up on the mountain and almost like a gladiatorial sporting event, wants to watch what will happen to the city, verses 5 and 6 tell us. But here, instead, Jonah affirms that God is gracious God is merciful, slow to anger, full of love. And as a response to this enormous, amazing declaration of who God is, Jonah says, so therefore kill me. If that's who you are, I want to die. And you want to say to yourselves, okay, hold on a second. Who could ever be upset with God being that gracious? I mean, mean, grace in the Bible is defined as undeserved, unearned, right? Unmerited goodness and blessing from God, right? Unmerited, unearned favor from God is grace. Why could anyone be angry and want to die in the face of a God who has such grace? Here's the answer. The only person in the world who would want to die in the face of a God of so much grace is a person who thinks that they don't need grace, The only person who wants to die in the face of a gracious God before even their enemies, the only person who wants to die before that is one who doesn't believe they actually themselves need grace. Jonah knows God is gracious. That's not hidden from Jonah. He's not blind to God's character. What Jonah is blind to is his need for that grace. See, Jonah thinks that grace is something that's being showed on people out there rather than something that he is being shown every moment of his life. And we're going to see that more as we go along. Now, I know that's not a problem for any of us, right? We're good, you know, most of us, Reformed Christians. We know, you know, we're saved by grace through faith, right? Not by works. That grace stands at the center of who we are. We know that. And yet, isn't it true that so quickly we can begin slipping into the view that maybe I don't need God's grace just as much as the person next door to me. I don't need God's grace as much as that person needs God's grace. I mean, I'm doing a pretty good job here. Be careful in your successes as a Christian. Be careful in those moments of tasting glory because so quickly, as a friend of mine likes to say, the wick, the distance between my sense of selflessness and my pride is very short. Very quickly, can I take a moment of selfless goodness before God and it quickly twists into a moment of pride and I begin to think, you know, I'm doing 
pretty good on my own here. I'm doing all right. I like in C.S. Lewis's Great Divorce, this story of a group of, of people who've recently died who are on the bus going up to heaven. It's a, it's a fiction. And in this, in this uh, story, the, the people getting off the bus, the, the recently departed, almost appear like ghosts because their human earthly bodies are just ghostly in comparison with the physical, full, heavenly bodies, resurrection bodies of those they meet. And everyone who gets off the bus meets another, go- another now inhabitant of heaven who they knew in their earthly life. It's sort of the welcoming party. Well, one of them... One of the ghosts getting off the bus, he meets one of his former employees who was a murderer. And here's what the exchange says. Here's what this this ghost says. He says, I don't see myself going in the same boat with you, see? Why should I? It sounds better with an English accent. Why should I? I don't want charity. I'm a decent man. Now the other shook his head. You can never go do it. You can never do it like that. I mean, Irish. It's you know St. Patrick's weekend that works, um, and it isn't exactly true, you know. Now mirth danced in his eyes as he said it. What isn't true? Said the ghost sulkily. You weren't a decent man, and you didn't do your best. We none of us were, and we none of us did. You gasped the ghost. You have the face to tell me I wasn't a decent chap. Of course. Must I go into all that? I will tell you one thing to begin with. Murdering old Jack wasn't the worst thing I did. It was the work of a moment, and I was half mad when I did it. But I murdered you in my heart deliberately for years. I used to lie awake at nights thinking, what I'd do if I ever got the chance? And that is why I've been sent to you now, to ask for your forgiveness and to be your servant as long as you need one and longer if it pleases you. I was the worst, but all the men who worked under you felt the same as I did. You made it hard for us, you know, and you made it hard for your wife and hard for your children. You mind your own business None of your lips see, because I'm not taking any impudence from you about my private affairs. There are no private affairs, said the other. What what strikes me in this story, this moment, is a person who's so blind, like Jonah's blind, to a real self-assessment of who he is. He thinks at the end of the day, at the end of his life, he believes that he actually has done pretty well, at least better than others. It's a little bit like the Pharisee and the tax collector from Luke chapter 18. Jesus says they both go into the temple to pray. The one, the Pharisee says, I thank you that I'm not like other men. You know, I tithe, I do all the right things. I'm certainly not like this tax collector. What does the tax collector do? He says, God have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus says, one of those two went home justified. And here's the punchline, it wasn't the Pharisee. Oh, for us to end the end of, come to the end of our lives and believe that we have not been in need of God's grace. Oh, to come to the end of our lives and to believe that we are actually standing pretty well on our own two feet. To be blind like Jonah was blind. 
For each of us, we can fall into this trap of believing that our works, our th- the things we do each day and each week, that somehow they add up, right? We know we're saved by grace, but we're working really hard at our works, right? We, we wanna stand as much as we can on our own two feet. I gotta tell you, today, for example, for me personally, I agonized over the fact that I didn't have Jonah chapter four memorized this morning. I agonized over it. I got up way too early and started working on it. I just, my head was fuzzy and I just couldn't get there. And finally I said, I'm not doing it. And I agonized, why? Because somehow in my head, I had begun to think, no, 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 my status is based on what I do. If I don't perform well, somehow I'm gonna be, I'm gonna be lacking. And we do that before men, and we do that before God again and again. Here's the reason I couldn't uh, memorize Jonah this week, is I was so busy this week at the beach in Destin, sitting with my children, splashing in the water, I couldn't memorize Jonah 4. Instead of memorizing Jonah 4, I watched my daughters, I won't tell you which one, one of them discover a sandbar out in the ocean in Destin, you know, sandbar where you're, you're high enough up, it looks like you're walking on the water. And there's my daughter yelling over the whole of the beach to hear, I'm Jesus, who do you say that I am? <laughs> so Jonah 4 didn't get memorized. But we do this to ourselves. We begin to think that we are not as much in need of grace as we are. We're blind to our desperate need for God's grace. Without his grace, we are nothing. Jonah can't see this. And that's why he's angry at the Lord's gracious mercy. But thankfully, Jonah's not just blind. Chapter four goes on to say that Jonah is now beckoned back into mission. It's it's surprising. You'd think that what would come next would be judgment, but instead it's not. It's a beckoning back to ministry, beckoning back into mission. Jonah, this blind prophet, is called back into mission. Look at verse 11 at the end of our text. When God says to him, should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? He, He actually asks Jonah his opinion. It's a real question. I mean, he says to him first, are you pitying the plant? I mean, Jonah, honestly, I mean, this is the comedy. Are you honestly pitying the plant over 120,000 real people, not to mention their cattle, right? Are you honestly doing this, Jonah? But then he asks the question, and it's a real question. He says, Jonah, should I not pity them? I mean, God is incredibly gracious in this passage. Instead of coming with fire and judgment on Jonah, he comes alongside like a father putting his arm around him and says, let's, let's go look over the city. Jonah, Should I not have pity? He's honestly asking the question, and why is God asking Jonah his opinion? Why doesn't he just say, I should pity? Why does he ask Jonah? Because this whole chapter has been there to stir in Jonah's heart a desire again to go into mission. See, he's asking Jonah at the end of this passage, Jonah, should I not go? Because the, the anticipation is that Jonah will finally, by the end of this chapter, have had his heart stirred to say, yes, you should pity them. And Lord, you should send me. You see, this story sounds a lot like Elijah when he ran from Jezebel. In, in 1 Kings chapter 19, when Elijah is faced with you know, the threats from Queen Jezebel, he, he flees, he runs. And a very similar moment happens 
where in 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 4, he as well sits under a plant and asks to die. 19, verse 4, but he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree, and he asked that he might die, saying, it is enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. I mean, you wonder if in some ways God is replaying the Elijah story here. But what does God do with Elijah in this moment of despair? Elijah complains before God, oh, there's nobody who's on my side. And then God shows up in a windstorm and fire and still small voice. And even after that, Jonah complains again, there's nobody on my side. And then what does God do? How does God get Elijah out of this? Verse 15 of 1 Kings 19. And the Lord said to him, go, return on your way. In other words, in response to all of Jonah's, uh, all of Elijah's complaints, God simply says, the work's not done. Get back at it. Go. Imperfect, as broken as you are, go back to the mission. And so he does with Elijah. So, So he does with Jonah. Like he does with Elijah, so he does with Jonah. God is calling Jonah back to work. Notice what he says in verse 11. He says, these people who do not know their right hand from their left. In other words, they're totally ignorant. The mission's not done. The work's not done, Joni. You went and preached one sermon, and yes, it brought about great citywide repentance, but there is still work to be done. Your call continues, Jonah. Do you not see, should I not have pity on this great city of Nineveh? See, what God is doing with Jonah here is he's inviting him. He's beckoning him back to the mission field. Don't you hear this? Hear the good news in this? That those of us who are blind, those of us who are failures, those of us who are a comedic mess, God doesn't come and say, well, I tried with you. I guess we're going to go to option B. He comes to us like he comes to Jonah and says, should I not have pity on these people? Will you go? Will you go again? Will you have your heart stirred back into mission again? God beckons us back. As I've sat with parishioners over the last two years that I've been here, when I ask how I can pray for them, you know the number one prayer request that comes back? The number one prayer request, more than health, more than um, you know, other challenges in life, the number one prayer request is, I don't know what God is calling me to do in this next season of my life. This whole sermon series looking at Jonah, looking at this call to vocation, this call to mission, is a response to two years of me hearing that question. God is calling us into mission. And in doing so, he's giving us the greatest purpose we could ever find. Do you hear that good news to someone who's broken? To someone who's blind? To someone who's a comedic mess? I'm not done with you. The work is not over yet. Go back to the work. I'm beckoning you back to mission. But let's be realistic. How can a blind person like Jonah ever really be effective in mission? I mean, how can he really get back and back? How can someone who's so broken be invited back? How can someone like Patrick, that great evangelist of the Irish people, how could he be expected to go back, beaten up, broken from his captivity in Ireland, and go back to the people 
who were his captors and bring them the gospel. How can this be expected? How can this possibly happen? How can Jonah, this broken, blind prophet, be sent back to Nineveh? Because something greater than Jonah is here. As we've seen again and again in this series, this is not ultimately about Jonah. This is all pointing to Christ. This is all prefiguring the ministry of Jesus, which leads us to our final point. How can a broken, blind missionary be beckoned back into the mission field? Because he's beloved. Even though Jonah is so blind, even though he's so unaware of his need for God's grace, so thick-headed, The way he can be beckoned back into mission is because he is beloved. This passage shows Jonah just how beloved he is. Remember back at the beginning of the series, Jonah chapter one, verse one, we're told that the word of the Lord came to Jonah. And that word Jonah, that name Jonah, that word means the dove. Jonah's name is the dove. And and in Hebrew, names meant something, right? He's named the dove for a reason. And as I said back then, what I find fascinating is that in Song of Songs, right, this amazing passage, that, this text that celebrates the love between a, a man and a wife, but also allegorically talks about the love between God and his bride, the church. At one point in chapter two, God gives this very specific name to his beloved. He calls his beloved his dove. Oh, my dove, the Lord says, in the clefts of the rock, in the crannies of the cliff, let me see your face, let me hear your voice, for your voice is sweet, your face is lovely. Jonah, being the dove, truly means that he is the Lord's beloved. It's a sweet, affectionate name. This is the Lord's beloved. This blind prophet, this comedic mess, is yet beloved of the Lord. As Philip Cray writes, he says, Jonah does nearly everything wrong and gets into the deepest trouble imaginable. Yet all the while he remains the Lord's beloved and chosen one, not to mention one of the most successful prophets in the whole Bible. Jonah is Israel, but Jonah is also us. And we need his story. You see, the way that Jonah's shown his belovedness in this story in chapter four is that little bit with the plant, right? Remember in verse six, it says that the Lord appointed a plant to spring up. And it, made, it came up and covered Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. But you know what it actually says in the Hebrew? The reason the plant comes up? It says the plant came, the Lord appointed a plant to deliver Jonah from evil. It wasn't about his comfort. It was about the fact that Jonah was on this evil path. The Lord gave the plant to deliver him from evil. It's the same phrase we use in the Lord's Prayer, deliver us from evil, right? The Lord comes with this plant. The whole story of the plant is in order to save Jonah, to rescue Jonah. And here's how he does it. He uses this very specific word. It's the word appointed. In verse six, he says, the Lord appointed a plant. It means he made it, he gave it, he designed it. It's a gift. Jonah has nothing to do with the plant. The Lord appointed the plant. But then verse seven says, the Lord appointed a worm and the worm killed the plant. 
And then verse 8 says the Lord appointed an east wind that scorched his head. In each of these moments, we're seeing the Lord's personal hand bringing up the plant, killing the plant, and then bringing a scorching wind on Jonah's head. Appointed, 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 all summed up in verse 10 when God says, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in the night and perished in the night. Here's what God is saying. Jonah, this whole plant moment is meant to be a reminder to you. It's meant to teach your heart something. It's to remind you of this, that I am personally involved in every small detail in your life. Not only do I appoint the plant, I appoint the worm, I appoint the wind, I appoint it all. Jonah, you did not make this happen. Jonah, you're not in control of your life. Your life that you're asking me to take away from you is a gift that I've given to you. I am personally involved in your life in the most intimate of details. Most personally involved. What Jonah is being shown in this chapter is despite the fact that he's totally blind to God's grace, he's being called back into mission because he's beloved. Jonah, do you see how intimately personally involved I am in your life? I give you life, I sustain you, I am personally with you. Do you hear those words from St. Patrick's breastplate, which we sang earlier in the service? This is why Irish Celtic Christianity has infected Anglicanism in a very healthy, helpful way, because it brought into, part of Patrick's legacy is bringing this personal encounter, an almighty God that gets very personal, very intimately involved, appoints all the things in our lives. Listen to the specifics. Christ be with me, Christ within me, Christ behind me, Christ before me, Christ beside me, Christ to win me, Christ to comfort and restore me, Christ beneath me, Christ above me, Christ in quiet, Christ in danger, Christ in hearts of all that love me, Christ in mouth of friend and stranger. Jonah is beloved. God is personally invested in every detail in his life. This is what the plant is meant to show him. But how does a broken person hear this love? I mean, some of us, all of us, if we're honest, we're very broken. How can we hear such love? How can we believe such love? You know, as we come into Holy Week, starting next Sunday, every moment is, is liturgically put together to move our hearts to Calvary. But one of the most profound moments that I think shows us that something greater than Jonah is here is when on Monday, Thursday, we experience the foot washing. In John chapter 13, Here's where we begin to understand just how beloved we are. Remember these disciples that he's gathering with? These are the ones that are about to turn on him, flee from him, abandon him, who are the biggest failures again and again throughout the gospel. What does Jesus do? How, what degree of love does he show these absolute blind failures? John 13 tells us, before the feast of Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, to depart out of this world to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During the supper, when the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, 
that he had come from God and he was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. And then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was around his waist. And then he says this, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this will all people know that you are my disciples if you love one another. See, how can a blind prophet be sent and beckoned back into mission? It will require that he be shown a quality of love, shown just how beloved he is, that that will propel him into mission in a way that he's never been in mission before. He needs to be shown love. He needs Christ. We need the one who is greater than Jonah among us. Why are we looking at Jonah? Because like Jonah, the Lord is calling us into mission. But like Jonah, our story of being on mission can also feel like a comedic mess. The book closes on a cliffhanger. Will Jonah see it? Will he recognize his blindness? Will he receive that beckoning back into mission? Will he realize just how beloved he is? You see, Jonah's story is left on a cliffhanger because it's actually meant to be our story. We are to fill in the ending. Will we see our blindness? Will we hear that beckoning back to mission? And will we hear just how beloved we are? As people come into the Anglican church, sometimes they're surprised that we have weekly Eucharist. And I often say we, we need weekly Eucharist because it tells us and reminds us and shows us the whole gospel again and again. A number of years ago, I was at a meeting and at the end of the meeting, we were having a Eucharistic moment. And I was in such a bad place, such a bad place that I almost skipped communion. I was just like, I'm just gonna leave early and you know, get to the airport and skip communion. And I, I just felt convicted I had to stay, so I, re I reluctantly stayed. And as the communion service started, as the Eucharistic prayer started, I was struck, struck by just how blind I'd been, how much I'd begun to build a scaffold of my own works. And oh God cut through that and said, your works are worthless, my grace is everything. This is my body given for you. This is my blood given for you. All grace. And then in the context of the Eucharist, I, I felt that call back into mission. I've got to take this out into the world. I've got to share this again with those around me. But then I heard these words as the bishop was preparing to invite us to communion. And I've used these words every day since as I invite people to communion in spite of my blindness, that call beckoning me back into mission, the bishop said these words. He said, come, beloved. All is ready. If we can understand what that means, if we can hear the gospel today, come, beloved. You blind, you broken. You comedic messes. Come, beloved. All is ready. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.